Good. That's great. Just wanted to be sure. Obviously, we have some amplification here. Well, that was a rather sobering way to start the day in that first hour. Let me give you something more encouraging. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Outline for this, I think, is on page 17 and maybe 18 in the booklet. Um, A short text, and yet a text which leads to so much else that we will see in the book of Acts uh, from this one uh, incident, uh, really the occasion of potential conflict in the church, at least tension and friction, uh, and uh, the way that the, the Lord Jesus works through the apostles, uh, through the, uh, the humility that he's given to them, the wisdom that he's given to them, and the leaders that are then appointed to serve alongside them, uh, really, as uh, I will hope to trace out at the beginning here before we focus directly into this text, uh, is, uh, is the beginning of the expansion of the church ultimately to the ends of the earth. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a striking thing. We start with some hungry widows who are being neglected, and uh, when the Lord's little ones are cared for, all kinds of explosive things happen uh, throughout the whole world. Uh, so it's a wonderful, wonderful text. Let me read it for us. Uh, just chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Again, let's ask the Lord to teach us. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for this word which reminds us that you care for us as whole persons. That you commissioned and called and gifted your apostles to preach the word of God, to preach the good news of your grace, that gospel of the work of Jesus in His obedience, death, and resurrection that reconciles us to You, that removes from us the curse of our sin, the penalty of our sin, which we so richly deserve, 
and instead clothes us with the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that we are acceptable in your sight for his sake. That is our deepest and greatest need. But Father, because you are a loving Father, you know that we have other needs as well. And you care for our needs through the body of Christ. We have widows who need ministry of compassion. We have aliens, strangers who need ministry of hospitality and welcome. We have lonely people. We have people struggling with particular sins in their lives. We have children who need to be nurtured in the way of your gospel and your grace in the whole counsel of God. So many needs that you provide for through your people. And Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work equipping your church as the body of Christ with all the various gifts that are needed so that we are knit together in one heart and one mind and contribute to each other's growth in toward maturity till we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ himself. So Father, we thank you that you have knit us together from various backgrounds as well as we will see in this text and throughout Acts that you take the scattered and divided peoples of the world and overcome those walls of division and bring us together into one family. We pray that uh, that will be evident among us uh, as you have placed us in a region that is characterized by great diversity and variety of race and national background and language. Father, we pray that it would be evident to all the way that Jesus can overcome uh, differences that would otherwise be divisions and uh, instead unite us uh, so that our diversity becomes an occasion for magnifying your power and our unity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, families always experience a certain degree of conflict. I don't care how good you look on the surface. There's some tension here or there. We're talking at breakfast about the question of the polygamy of the patriarchs and David in the Old Testament. Why didn't God just say, don't do that? One man, one woman, that's the way it's supposed to be. That certainly is the implication of Genesis 2. He will be united to his wife and they shall be one flesh. Uh, Jesus so clearly uh, enforces that in, in the, the New Testament, uh, that, that marriage is between one man and one woman. Uh, but it looks as if God wasn't that concerned about the patriarchs and David. Uh, somebody asked me that. And uh, my answer was, if you'll recall, tell me if my answer is right, Troy. Um, you know, when you look at the polygamous marriages in the Old Testament, it didn't really seem to work so well. Uh, uh, whether you're thinking of Jacob with uh, his two wives, Leah and Rachel, competing to see who can give birth to the most kids, uh, whether personally or through surrogate motherhood, or uh, whether you look at David and the, the conflict between Amnon and Absalom. And, and it, it, it's, it, it's bad news. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, hard enough when you have all the kids born to one mother. And then if you've got two different mothers competing, it's worse. Uh, think about putting together a family composed of different countries and cultures and national backgrounds. Uh, we have 
uh, a family in our church who are Dutch in background, and the Lord has given them a number of children by natural birth from their union, and also a number more children from Latin America and uh, the Pacific Islands as well. Now, these kids come as babies, so they're not fully enmeshed in their home cultures, but uh, it's quite an exciting thing to see the Denbraver troop walk in on a Sunday morning and see the nationalities of the world represented within one household. But there's some conflicts, you know, in, in all families here and there. Uh, and, uh, and the Lord is doing something even more difficult with his church. He's pulling together families of people who are steeped in different cultures and different races and different languages. Um, that's part of what is being gotten at in this text. Uh, because here we begin to see friction among the people of God. I think I mentioned the other night that some... Uh, critical scholars of the New Testament accuse Luke of kind of whitewashing the early history of the church, painting it sort of as the good old days when everything was perfect, you know, it was sort of Camelot, where the rain never falls till after sundown, and by 9 p.m. the moonlight must appear, and everything was idyllic and perfect. Uh, I don't know why those guys can be called scholars, because if they're reading the book of Acts carefully, they'll know that Luke, while he explains many marvelous things that the Lord is doing. He's also very frank about the fact that there are problems in the church. We saw it earlier this morning. There are actors pretending to be something they're not in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. Here, there's a tension that's growing, not among hypocrites and genuine believers, but among genuine believers and one another. There's a complaint Complaint is such a nice, mild English term, but there's no English word that we can get to really capture the, the feeling of the Greek term there, because the Greek term is what I learned as an English major is onomatopoeia. That is, it sounds like what it's about. The Greek term, you can hear it. It's gongusmos. You can hear the gritting of the teeth there. Gongusmos. There's a, there's a grinding, grumbling complaint there's resentment because some parts of the church are being neglected by other parts of the church. And that's important to see. Now remember, we're still in Jerusalem here. Remember, at this point, the composition of the church is not a bunch of people who have been converted out of raw paganism into the Christian faith. There are some folks here who have pagan Gentile background who have converted to Judaism and been trained in Judaism. They, they're called in the New Testament, they're called proselytes, or if you're using the NIV, it will, since it knows we don't know that word very well, uh, or that it has other connotations, that converts to Judaism. Uh, in fact, one of the leaders who's appointed in this text, uh, Nicolaus, is a proselyte. That is, he's a Gentile who converted to Judaism, submitted to circumcision, gave the sacrifice at the temple, underwent a ceremonial washing uh, to convert to Judaism, and then heard the gospel and came to faith in Jesus. But by and large, this is a pretty homo homogenized group still uh, at this point. Uh, they, they're all steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. They all live in the same city. They do speak different languages as their heart language or their home language. And that's the point that Luke points out here when he talks about the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Some 
naturally speak Greek, very likely they have moved to Jerusalem from somewhere else in the Roman Empire where Greek was the natural uh, language of everyday conversation and business and so on. A lot of people spoke Greek within the land of promise as well, but some of these folks are distinguished as those who maybe were most comfortable in speaking Greek and didn't really understand Hebrew or Aramaic, both of which were live and living languages in Palestine at the first century. But there is a little bit of variety there. Uh, and, And this variety between the Greek speakers who were more at home in Greek language and maybe in Greek culture and the Hebrew or the Aramaic speakers, Luke uses that other term Hebrew that covers both of those Semitic languages as we call them, Uh, that's part of the problem. Uh, How can these widows among the Hellenists, among the Greek speakers, be neglected? Well, remember the numbers by this point. Remember we're talking about believers in Jesus that number in the thousands. They can gather. Well, it's more and more difficult to gather in the temple courts to worship altogether because of the opposition of the, the, uh, the hierarchy, the establishment in the temple. But they can still possibly do that. But to care for one another on a, on a very personal basis and to make sure that those who are needy uh, have those needs met so that there's no needy person among them, Deuteronomy 15, mostly that's going to take place as they gather in smaller groups in homes probably scattered throughout the city. And uh, very likely those different homes are going to be distributed along language lines so that there will be some Greek-speaking. We know, in fact, there was a Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem as well as Hebrew synagogues in Jerusalem as well as the temple among the Jewish people who didn't necessarily accept Jesus as the Messiah. It was the Greek-speaking synagogues that would ultimately oppose Stephen in his strong witness for Jesus. So it's not unnatural to think that there are Greek-speaking house churches, believers in Jesus, who gather and worship in Greek, and others who worship in Aramaic or Hebrew. Uh, it's, a, it's a variety, and, and those are the gatherings probably that now the question is, how are we going to make sure that the material needs of all of those who are in need in all of these different house churches uh, are going to be covered? The infrastructure of the church has not kept pace with the growth of the church and so there's there's conflict there's tension there's gongus mas right conflict not a present not a pleasant experience but sometimes a great opportunity because the stress of getting along with people who maybe don't see eye to eye with us with us on absolutely everything may spur us to grow may spur us to stretch rather than leaving us as we are. They may humble us, may help us to see ourselves and to see a situation from another person's perspective and point of view as well, may give us opportunity to live as a reflection of the sacrificial love of Jesus who gave himself for us. I think of Philippians 2, before Paul gets to that wonderful Psalm and song celebrating the amazing humiliation of Christ, who though he was in very nature God, humbled himself, poured himself out, took the form of a servant, died the death, even the cursed death of the cross, and then was highly exalted. Paul gets into that whole song 
you'll remember by saying, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus' sacrifice for us. Can you live by grace as a reflection of the sacrificial love of Jesus? That's what the friction in the early church gave the church an opportunity to do at this point. How the church responds to the friction when different cultures, different nationalities rub up against one another and begin to generate some heat is going to impact how the church bears witness to the reconciling power of Christ in the Gospel. And one of the things that we see as we trace the impact of the appointment of these seven servers throughout the rest of the book of Acts is that this event and the decisions made at this moment, the appointment of these seven and what flows from their appointment really does have ongoing ripples of ramification throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Remember, for example, Acts 1.8, our structure for the book as a whole, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Three phases in terms of the geographical, the spatial expansion of the gospel and the kingdom throughout the book of Acts. Well, the transition between phase one, Jerusalem, and phase two, Judea and Samaria, is really precipitated by the witness of probably the point man among the seven, Stephen. You notice in the description here that Stephen is described more fully than the others when the seven are listed in verse 5. Stephen is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. If we were to go on to read further, we would see in verse 8 that Stephen was full of grace and power. Verse 10, the opponents of the gospel from this Greek-speaking synagogue of the freedmen populated by people from Cyrene and Alexandria in northern Africa and Cilicia and Asia, these people could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. And of course, this chapter leads into Stephen being hauled before the Sanhedrin, accused of speaking against the temple and the Torah, against the temple and the law that God had given through Moses, and Stephen giving his marvelous defense speech, as I mentioned the other night, the longest speech in the book of Acts, uh, which is not so much a gospel invitation as it is a prophetic oracle indicting unbelieving Israel. Uh, pointing out how God was never limited to the temple in Jerusalem in his ability to be with his people. He was with Joseph when he was in Egypt after his brothers had sold him into slavery. He was with Moses in the desert. The Lord has always been with his people, whether there's a physical sanctuary structure in Zion or anywhere else or not. The temple was God's condescension to Israel for the Old Covenant period or a part of it, but ultimately God can be with His people. In speaking, the, in, in repeating Jesus' announcement that the physical temple would be destroyed, Stephen is in no way saying that God is going to forget His Emmanuel promise. He will still be with His people. And the accusation that Stephen is speaking against Moses and the law of Moses Stephen basically says, well, you know, it's been the history of Israel to always reject the rescuers that God had provided for them. 
The brothers rejected Joseph, even though God had planned to save their lives through Joseph and his leadership in Egypt. The Israelites rejected Moses, who made you to be a ruler and judge over us, even though God had appointed Moses to be a ruler and deliverer for the people. The people of Israel rejected the prophets who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and you've rejected the righteous one, the ultimate deliverer. No, I'm really in line with the faithful ones as I proclaim Jesus to you. Well, Stephen, as you know, is martyred for his witness. Interestingly, the word that we have martyr in English comes from the Greek word witness. He's a witness to the death. And the first martyr that we read about in the pages of Scripture. As a result of that, persecution begins. And the transition from phase one, Jerusalem, to phase two, uh, Samaria and Judea begins, beginning of chapter eight. Believers except the apostles, as we saw, are beginning to be scattered. Philip, one of the seven, takes the lead in going to Samaria, preaching to a court official from the queen of Ethiopia, or Nubia, uh, in southern Sudan today. And the gospel begins to go to the nations. Likewise, in the transition point between phase two, Judea and Samaria, and phase three, again, the people scattered as a result of Stephen's death and witness uh, are also integral there because it's the scattering that leads to the planting of the church in Antioch of Syria, And it's from that church in chapter 13 that Barnabas and Saul are set out as well. So there's that repercussion. The phases go out and out and out, all because the church responded rightly to the needs of Greek-speaking widows. Also notice in our text here the result of the Lord bringing alongside the apostles who are ministers primarily called to minister the word of God, to preach the gospel, bringing alongside of them another group of leaders who are charged to mercy ministry, to care for the needs of widows and the material needs, that that combination of mercy ministry, complementing and supporting and bearing witness to the power of the gospel and the lives of God's people, leads in verse 7 to the growing of the word. I mentioned that unusual phrase, that, that picture that Luke paints in chapter 6, verse 7, and 12:24 and 19:20, and one more time later on. The word grows. The word bears fruit. So again, you have that repercussions, those outgoing things. But it all began with conflict. And the conflict began because the church was indeed numerically growing, because the number of the disciples was multiplying over and over. And there are a variety of different kinds of people now in the church. As I mentioned, variety of language and culture. Native-born Hebraic Jews, in contrast to Greek-speaking Jews, who probably had lived elsewhere in the Roman Empire, had been part of the Dispersion, that is the scattering of uh, the Jewish people outside of the land of promise. That dispersion had begun, of course, in the Old Testament with the conquering of Judea, by, of Judah, Judea by, uh, by the Babylonians. Of course, many were carried off into captivity to the east, Daniel and his friends and others. Uh, but the scattering took place even after the Babylonians were defeated by the Medes and the Persians and the Medes and the Persians ultimately defeated by Rome 
The scattering was not always only forced scattering, but sometimes it was dispersion. Well, as we have dispersion sometimes in our congregation, people leave town because they need to get work elsewhere. And uh, at least some scholars of this, uh, of this period estimate that there were probably three or four Jews living outside the land of promise in the first century for everyone living inside the land, and many of them for commercial reasons or business reasons as well. So language and cultural diversity, gender and economic diversity. Luke mentions widows in particular here. Widows are women. You probably had noticed that before. Women in the ancient world typically were legally and economically disadvantaged, very much dependent upon their husbands or their sons, or first, of course, on their fathers. Um, women were then generally disadvantaged and dependent, and widows were doubly so once a husband died, unless they had sons who could care for them and defend their rights. Remember Jesus in the Gospel according to Luke uh, one of his parables in particular about the, the wicked judge who was always out for a bribe but only would give justice if you paid him enough and the widow who wore him down just by sheer persistence. Well, Jesus chose her because she had no other leverage to get him to do justice for her other than sheer persistence. She had no other family to come to her defense. And so she is really, he picks her as the illustration of the utterly powerless person who by sheer persistence can wear down an unwilling and unjust judge. And then he says, how much more confident you who are the children of the Heavenly Father can be that he will answer your prayer, that he will care for your needs. And of course, these widows here are not just women, and not just women without husbands to protect and provide for them, but they are women without husbands who naturally speak Greek. Now, how would they do that? Very likely, they have lived much of their lives outside of the land of promise. Again, scholars of this time talk about the evidence that many, at least, Jewish couples in their retirement years, such as they were, even if they had made their money in some other city, Corinth or Rome or wherever, in their later years sought to retire back to Jerusalem so that they could be near the temple. There may have been many older couples retiring in the Jerusalem area, having spoken Greek the rest of their life, and then the husband dies. And where are the children and their families? They're in Rome, right? Or Corinth or wherever. And so here are these widows who have come into the church and they have no extended family to care for them. Uh, the security system and the security, uh, social security system in the Roman Empire was a little iffy, you know, even worse than in America. Okay, non-existent. It was non-existent. And so you've got all of these things. These are widows. These are women in desperate need of provision and supply. And the church has stepped up to the plate generally speaking, but now the numbers are such that the apostles cannot fully care for all of them. A lot of variety in the kinds of people in the church, even though we're still in Jerusalem, even though everybody is still within the context of having learned the Old Testament scriptures. We don't have raw pagans coming in yet, but still a lot of variety. 
Racial variety as well in that some of these are Gentiles who have been converted to Judaism and then come to faith in Christ, such as Nicolaus. Variety of kinds of needs, because the apostles begin to think about this. Up to this point, as we saw this morning, when people brought the proceeds of additional property that they'd been able to sell so that others' needs could be met, they put them at the apostles' feet. And it was the apostles' task to divide and distribute all these things to different people. But now the apostles know they cannot continue to do that adequately and at the same time give attention to their primary calling from the Lord, which is to preach the gospel. When they say here, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, they're not saying that serving tables is a meaningless or insignificant task. What they're saying is, it's not our primary task. Actually, the word translated in the ESV, it is not right, is really quite literally, it is not pleasing. And they don't mean it's not pleasing to us. We want to preach. We don't want to care for widows' needs. No, they're saying it would not be pleasing to the Lord if we abandoned our calling as heralds of the gospel and witnesses to the resurrection in order to give adequate attention to these needs. So they're saying, you know, this is an important need, but we can't do it. We need word ministry and we need mercy ministry, words and deeds together. We also, and, and this is part of it as well, Here I think Luke is implying and showing us that the church needs to minister to its own and it needs to minister to those outside in that it needs to care for the needs of the family of God, but the apostles also need to be free to continue to bear witness to the gospel so that God will draw all of his elect in from those who are now unbelievers but who have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life and need to be called in. So there's the internal care for the members of the church as well as the external outreach of the church to non-believers. And that's part of the balance that needs to be maintained as well. I think sometimes churches easily polarize in one direction or another. Often new church plants focus a lot on outreach to unbelievers and come into a new community and reach new people. Perhaps believers as well who are not being fed well in, their, in the congregations to which they're, in which they're a part, but we want to reach new believers. And sometimes churches can get so fixated almost on reaching out and reaching out and gathering people in that they forget that once they're gathered in, they need to be nurtured and cared for and provided for and can get imbalanced in an external direction. Uh, But then churches can also get imbalanced in the other direction and focus so much on meeting our needs, which is a good thing, meeting our needs for nurture and our needs for teaching and our needs for discipling and, and on occasion needs for material wealth and su- material support uh, and provision, that we forget that we're also called to be outreaching as well. It, established churches, I think especially, can, can almost get that heavy gravitational pull like, like a black hole in outer space where the light can't escape anymore because there's so much heaviness on the inside. We we need to be both. Caring for the needs of the family of God already reached and reaching out to those not yet reached whom God will bring in by the preaching of the gospel. So, a very diverse church, even though it's still in Jerusalem. And now the conflict. The unintended neglect, it's not willful, but it's unintentional. 
that the Greek-speaking widows are being missed as the food is distributed among these, no doubt, many house churches. Um, where are the priorities going to be going in terms of the apostles' ministry? Uh, there, there's, there's a sense of grievance here in this word complaint, gongusmas. There's a sense of, of being neglected. So what, what's needed is not only somebody who's an effective administrator, or some men who are effective administrators, but also those who are effective peacemakers. And the apostles themselves need to be that as well. Well, that's the challenge of growth. Growing diversity produces growing friction. Uh, What about the power of grace? As we see the problem here, produced by the wonderful dilemma that there's such multiplying growth and such a diverse group, how does growing diversity, how do growing diversity and friction bring even more growth as leaders are gripped by grace. Well, first of all, look at the apostles' response. As the complaint is brought to them, verses 3 and 4, well, end of 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Think about who these apostles have been in the past. Think about, for example, their response during Jesus' earthly ministry when people tried to take insignificant folks and get them up close to Jesus, like mothers with young children. What were the disciples' response at that point when the moms wanted to get their young kids close to Jesus? Away! Get them out of here! Jesus has no time for kids. They're insignificant people, right? We have to protect Jesus. He's got more important things on his agenda. We're his handlers. We'll keep those insignificant kids away from Jesus. And, of course, Jesus rebukes them. Uh doesn't tell us that it was only the disciples, and it probably wasn't only the disciples, who, uh, when Jesus was on his way out of Jericho, on his way to Jerusalem, and this blind beggar made such a nuisance of himself, remember Bartimaeus yelling at the top of his lungs, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, over and over again, somebody shushed him. And I suspect it was probably some of these same apostles. Hey, quiet. And Jesus stops and says, bring him to me. And they changed their tune in a hurry then, didn't they? Hey, he's calling for you. you know. Suddenly Bartimaeus, whom nobody, nobody really knew and everybody wanted to be quiet, suddenly now he's man of the hour and Jesus heals him of his blindness. But that was their attitude. Important people get access to Jesus and insignificant people, well, they don't count. But when they heard here that widows who in that culture would have been considered pretty unimportant people, when when they hear that widows in the church are being neglected, they call a huge congregational meeting. They pay attention to it. Now, they do explain that they cannot devote their time to this ministry any longer because of the sheer numbers, that it would not be pleasing to God for them to devote themselves to these other things. But they don't respond 
with a matter of indifference. Oh, this is no big deal. Don't worry about it. Stop whining. No, they don't respond that way. They don't respond defensively. They do submit to the commission that they've gotten to to give the Word of God, but they don't reply with any excuses. They don't even respond in a way of control. Uh, and this, I think, is a striking thing. What they say is, you're absolutely right. This is a need that has to have special attention. And not only does it need to have special attention from some special leaders, but these leaders need to be especially well qualified. They need to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom to make sure that no widows go hungry. But then the apostles say, now, brothers and sisters, you look among you and you find who those folks are, who those men are. Seven men should do the trick, but you identify them. They do not, the apostles do not designate those leaders. It would have been appropriate for them to do that, but instead they trust the Lord to work through his church to recognize those whom he has gifted and matured to the point of being men who are worthy and trustworthy in this matter. The ESV here, as, uh, as the apostles describe the qualifications in verse 3, the ESV says, Choose seven men of good repute. It's really seven men who are testified to. That is, people can give testimony that these are men who are reliable, full of the Spirit, and full of of wisdom. So they trust Jesus to lead his church. They trust the Holy Spirit to lead church members to recognize mature men as leaders, full of the Spirit and wisdom. And they acknowledge that for them, for their own part, as they are called to preach the word, they also need to be dependent upon the Lord of the word. Did you notice the slight difference between the apostles' description of their task and calling in verse 2 and their task and calling in verse 4. In verse 2, it would not be right, pleasing to the Lord, that we give up preaching the Word to serve tables. We need to preach the Word. We need to serve the Word to people. In verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Integral to their preaching of the word they know is a ministry of prayer. We must be in prayer for ourselves, for the congregation, for the Lord to extend the power of the gospel. We need to protect our time for prayer if we are to faithfully minister the word of God. Brothers, I preach to myself and I preach to you who are called to the ministry of the word. We've got to protect our time for prayer. And I preach it so passionately because I'm a prime offender in this. I will spend hour after hour preparing a sermon, doing the word studies and the analysis of Old and New Testament. I love all that stuff. But I don't spend nearly enough time in praying that God would write the message on my own heart and on the hearts of those to whom I bring it. I have done some of that for you all here, but I haven't done nearly enough. I'm praying that the Lord will bless beyond anything we have any right to expect from our prayer as he writes his word on our hearts. But you see, the apostles say, 
To minister the Word faithfully, we must devote ourselves to prayer as well. The two are integral. These are guys who have been humbled by grace and lifted up by grace. They know what they need and what the congregation needs. And so they know that they cannot be burdened with that kind of important, mercy-expressing, administrative task of distributing the need to the needs of the widows and all the various house churches if they're also going to be devoting themselves to the thing that God has called them specifically to. Mercy ministry is a crucial ministry. The widows must be cared for. Jesus cared for the poor. And they know that needs to be cared for by leaders who are designated by God with great wisdom given by the Spirit. So the apostles' response is a first encouraging sign. The conflict that could have led to division instead is diffused because their response, their solution, as we see, is pleasing to the whole congregation. And the congregation, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how, were there many ballots, who knows, but the congregation in some way selected and identified these seven men as those to whom they could entrust this important task. Were they the first deacons? Well, Stephen and Philip, at least, in the, minister, in the, in the chapters that follow, do a lot more than deacons ordinarily are called to do in terms of preaching and witness and so on. They may be, although Luke doesn't technically call them by that term, that title. Nevertheless, ministry to tables is diakonia, of the tables. So it's related ministry, that servant word that we get deacon from is related both to the apostles' ministry of the word and to the deacons, or the sevens, at least ministry of tables. I'm not sure we know fully. But they are called to serve. And interestingly, as they are called to serve, they are glad to serve because they have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The language that is used here is language that is applied to Jesus himself in Isaiah 11. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon the shoot from Jesse's stump. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. And that Messiah who is anointed with the Spirit in Isaiah 11 will not judge by what his eye sees. That is, he won't give favoritism to those who are prominent and wealthy and powerful to the neglect of those who are poor and dependent and apparently insignificant. With righteousness, he will care for and do justice for the needy, for the poor. So these servants come to serve. And the internal and material needs of the widows in the church are met, as well as the external needs for outreach through the apostles. And as I said, at least the samples that were given... Oh, I do need to mention one of these fellows before we go on to talk more about Stephen and, uh, and Philip. Uh, notice the last one in the list, Nicolaus. The first one and the last one in the list of seven there in, verses, uh, in verse 5 are described with more than their name names. Stephen, we've seen, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Nicolaus a proselyte from Antioch. 
two key descriptions. Nicolaus is a Gentile who converted to Judaism and then came to faith in Jesus. He's a preview of the Gentiles coming in, and now he's in leadership in the church as a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. An ethnic minority elevated to leadership in a predominantly Jewish congregation or set of congregations, a sign of the power of the grace of God to bring reconciliation. And, as it turns out, he's come from Antioch. The reference here is to Antioch of Syria, the third largest city of the Roman Empire. We'll be looking at it a little later on in this week. But uh, that was the city in which the gospel first began to be preached in large numbers to Gentile people. It became the hub from which Barnabas and Saul set off on their missionary journey in Acts 13 as well. So he's a preview in that sense as well of what God would do to plant the gospel in a major urban center in the ancient Roman world. Next to Rome and next to Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch was uh, the third largest and most prominent city and the most prominent in the eastern part of the empire as well. So Nicolaus is kind of a preview of things to come as well. But all of these seven are, are really appointed by God, not only primarily and first set apart to minister to the mercy ministry needs of widows, but, but also to carry the gospel into new phases. They are new covenant Joshua's. And that's, that's signaled by the choice of words that the Holy Spirit gives to Luke here, in that when the apostles say to the congregation, pick out from among you seven men full of good repute, the term that is used there is not Luke's normal word for choosing, which we found back in chapter 1 when Jesus chose the twelve and then Judas defected and then Jesus chose a replacement for Judas. That's the normal word. This is a different word. And it's a word that often in the Greek Old Testament, the translation from Hebrew into Greek, you, refers to God intervening, God taking care to designate someone in a particular way. It has a little different connotation to it. And so the ESV wants to give us some of that flavor. Pay attention to, pick out seven men. It's the term that is used back in Numbers 27 when Moses is looking beyond his own death and he says, Lord, who's going to lead these people next? And he says, Lord, you pick out, intervene, visit, Take it, pay attention to a man of your choosing who will lead the people after my death. And the Lord points him to Joshua, a man in whom is the Spirit of God. And Moses lays his hands on Joshua and designates him as his successor. That unusual word for picking out, the presence of the Spirit and the laying on of hands, threefold connection Numbers 27, and here, is Luke suggesting that these men are kind of to the apostles what Joshua was to Moses? I just lay that out for you. Joshua was the one who would pick up the baton from Moses and carry the kingdom of God into the, into the pagan regions of Canaan where, as the conquest went in, by military might, of course, uh, relying on the power of God. These fellows, in a sense, 
even though their calling is to care for mercy ministry, we see them also very active in witness as examples of those who are scattered except the apostles, bearing the witness of the Holy Spirit elsewhere. And so they carry the word of the gospel into pagan territories, into Samaria, as Philip preaches in Samaria after Stephen's martyrdom, uh, and then into, in a sense, into Ethiopia or into Kush, uh, that, that uh, African kingdom just to the south uh, of Egypt in the upper Nile region. Um, they're the ones who carry the word forward. And in a sense, the apostles follow along. Peter and John come alongside Philip in Samaria and confirm that the Samaritans have believed in Jesus and that the Spirit has been given to them. Um, as the message continues and the preaching of Philip continues along the coastlands, uh, Peter follows kind of in his train and it's, it's as a result of that that Peter ends up preaching to Cornelius and his household, as we'll see uh, tomorrow. So Philip brings the, the power of the gospel to the Samaritans and then to the coastlands, and Peter follows along. They go just as God scatters them, carrying the good news wherever they go. That's an amazing dynamic in the spread of the gospel. Certainly, missionaries are sent out to preach the gospel specifically. We find that in Barnabas and Saul in Acts 13. But there's a lot of natural movement that God uses as well to spread the gospel. Uh, I think of, uh, when was it, 98 I think, when uh, my wife and I were invited to go to East Malaysia, that's on the island of Borneo, northern part of the island of Borneo, to the, to the state of Sabah in East Malaysia, and uh, I had opportunity to teach some Bible translators there uh, from the book of Hebrews. We had a wonderful week together. And we saw some of their work. We met some of the Anglican pastors, Malaysian Anglican pastors there. And as we were in the interior, uh, in, in a town called Tongod, which uh, within my lifetime, uh, there was, there's a monument that, that indicates within my lifetime the headhunting of rival tribes was brought to an end by the British occupation. I mean, talk about not long ago uh, that this had been a place that was dominated by pagan darkness. Now there's this strong church there. And uh, we walked from the riverside up to the hill where the church facility was. And that church, which, and that area had only been able to be reached by way of the Kinabatangan River until the logging trucks cut roads through there. But that church had become the mother church to many other churches, and there was a large school there established by the church uh, for children. We walked along this road, and there are not a lot of street signs in Malaysia, but there's this huge sign that said Lorong, and we knew that meant street, Lorong Bruce David Sandylands. That did not sound like a Malaysian name. So I asked the, the Anglican pastor there, who was Bruce David Sandylands? And he explained that Bruce... David Sandylands was a trader with the British North Borneo Trading Company who was sent into the interior of Borneo along the Kinabatangan River in the late 19th, early 20th century uh, to make deals and to find what treasures could be exported out of Borneo and brought back and to make money for, for the company. And every time he came out of the interior he would go to the leaders of the church 
the Anglican churches and say, you need to send some missionaries in there because these people need to hear the gospel. And finally, he kind of wore them down and they sent some, some evangelists in and the church got established there. Here's a businessman. That's what he was. He was a businessman who loved Jesus and wanted to see the light of the gospel reach the interior of Borneo. Bruce David Sandylands. And they named a street in his honor in Tongo. The only named street there because they recognized that as he was scattered through his business uh, employments, uh, he had a heart to see the gospel reach other places. Well, that's what we see through these seven. That's how the gospel reaches Antioch, not necessarily through business, but Antioch, those scattered, preach the gospel there. All because, you see, at the beginning, as Luke shows us, here we have humbled leaders of the church, the apostles, who have learned to care for the needy and the weak and those that might otherwise be sort of shrugged off as insignificant, not very fruitful for church growth. What can widows do after all? Well, they can pray, among other things, but they can befriend others. And here, because the church cares for its needy ones, the gospel is extended and expanded through these seven and through others further and further and further. A good, a grumbling, a gungus moss that could have spelled the honeymoon, could, could have spoiled the honeymoon of those early days was addressed gently, respectfully, compassionately and wisely by leaders gripped by grace, humbled by the mercy that they'd received through Jesus Christ so that their hearts had been made tender to the needs of the weak and seemingly worthless folks by the compassion of the king. And God gained glory for himself, not only there in Jerusalem, as we see the word grew, priests became obedient to the faith because they saw in the church what Israel should always have been doing, caring for the weak and the needy. They saw it taking place spontaneously in the church, and God was glorified not only there, but out into Judea and Samaria and in principle to the ends of the earth as well. Well, we need to break for lunch, but I hope you're challenged and encouraged by that and see the beautiful balance uh, of the Holy Spirit as he causes the church to grow and address all the kinds of needs that people have, uh, all out of the response of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work of grace in our hearts and lives. Thank you that that work of grace not only addresses the problem of our record before you as lawbreakers and guilty, but also addresses the problem of the twistedness of our hearts that what we receive in union with Christ by faith is not only the wonder of justification, but also the wonder of the sanctifying process by which the Spirit turns our hearts which are too easily turned in on ourselves and turns us outward to care for others. We thank you for what we see here. We ask that you'll make our churches places in which people see the beauty of care for people's spiritual needs and for their personal and material needs. Care for those outside the church and care for those who are in the family of God. Care for those who are in the majority racial and ethnic groups care for those who are in the minority racial and ethnic and cultural groups as well 
that people might see the power of Jesus in the gospel to affect reconciliation and to unite his people in one heart and soul despite all of our differences, turning those differences into occasions to display the beauty of the unity of the body of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.